now I'm often overprotective about money in a way. I understand that money can suddenly disappear and that you have to protect yourself. And anytime I have, you know, spent a little bit too much on something or treated myself as something, there's always that kind of post by guilt, you know, that post spending clarity. Can you relate to feeling undervalued or underpaid in past jobs or careers? How might that experience influence your career and money-making opportunities you pursue in the future? Sex work. The world's oldest profession, shrouded in controversy. Enter Phoebe, a spokesperson for the Prostitute Information Center in Amsterdam, an activist working to empower sex workers and create change. In this interview, Phoebe pulls back the curtain on the adult entertainment industry, its financial realities, social stigma, and her advocacy for destigmatization. This conversation explores how she started doing online sex work in Thailand as a viable way to make money during COVID. Phoebe shares how sex work changed her perspective on fair pay and value of work. We discuss the difficulties in getting loans and financial access in the Netherlands, despite legalization. And Phoebe offers tips like having multiple income streams and always having get the F out money. I'm Bob Wheeler, and this is Money You Should Ask, where we explore why we do what we do when it comes to money. Ensure you never miss an episode. Click that follow button on your favorite podcast platform. Phoebe, it's so great to have you on the show. So great to see you, Bob. All the way from Amsterdam. Phoebe, I have to ask, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into the adult entertainment industry? And I don't know if that's even the right word. Yeah, so adult entertainment is fine. It comes under the umbrella of sex work, which is the politically correct term and the preferred term of what people understand as working in the porn industry, working in prostitution. We tend to use the term sex work to encompass any erotic entertainment or erotic service that's being provided in exchange for money or exchange for rent or whatever it may be. I first got into it during COVID. I was actually studying out in Thailand as part of my undergrad degree and I got into a situation where I didn't want to come back to the UK during COVID because I didn't want to go back into working in what I was doing before, which was working in the care industry. As you can imagine, during COVID, it was a really difficult workplace to go back into with yes. everything that was happening. So I decided that I was going to stay out in Thailand, but because of my visa restrictions, I couldn't work in any normal workplace. So engaging in webcam services was a viable option for me. And it made sense to me because in my mind, it was a form of sex work, which was kind of like a nice entrance into sex work in a way. Yeah. So I just started doing it. And when I realized the amount of money that I was able to bring in and how that worked out with living in a country where the exchange rate worked out perfectly, it made sense to me. And I was able to afford my rent and living quite a luxurious lifestyle out there. When I came back to the UK and it was almost like we had our second pandemic when we returned to the UK because I'd been out in Asia and then it had traveled over. I really wanted to do my master's degree, but the only way I was going to be able to afford it is if I was able to have a stable income that brought in a lot and that I could work around studying. So therefore working in webcamming 
works perfectly around studying. So I continued doing it and always had in my mind that this is just something I'm going to do while I need to, while it's necessary. When I finished my master's degree and started working at the Prostitution Information Centre in Amsterdam after doing my research there, I thought, well, why, if I'm still getting clientele visit me, why would I stop? You know, why not keep riding this train and financially support myself as long as possible? Yeah, that totally makes sense. So silver lining from COVID, (laughs) one of the few. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about the stigma around sex work and what you've observed? I think especially towards people who engage in window work, which is where you work in the windows in Amsterdam, or people who do escorting or street work, there is a very high level of stigma. You know, there is an association that you must be emotionally damaged or you must have some sort of mental health issue to engage in sex work or you must have been abused as a child, which most certainly isn't the case for a lot of us. The rates of child abuse or sexual abuse amongst sex workers is about the same as the general population. And it's certainly not my experience. But even within sex work, people who work on OnlyFans or people who do can buy minute work like I do, there is a stigma as well of you must be attention seeking or you're not doing a quote unquote real job and that you have no skills or can't apply yourself to something more deliberate. One of the things I've constantly come into conflict with is people saying, well, Phoebe, you're so well educated. Why would you do this? And I have to say to them, because I'm well educated and I understand money. So, you know, you know, it seems silly not to do it if you're able to do it and to make money out of it. And, yeah, just a stigma that you are not able to uphold relationships, which is not true. I've been in a long time relationship now for quite a while and that you are damaging your body in some way by providing sexual services, which is funny because we never make that comment of men who sleep around or I like to think that we live in a society now where we allow women to have free sexuality but as soon as you put a muddy element on it then suddenly it becomes damaging so those are some of the stigmas we come up against and then they reproduce themselves in how institutions like the justice system or how governments treat us or create laws around sex work And then those stigmas are reproduced by family members or friends and also by sex workers themselves. So the danger is not with engaging in sex work itself, but the danger is when a sex worker doesn't feel like she can tell someone where she is, where she's going, because she's scared of the stigma. And then her client is aware of that. And that's when you get into these dangerous situations. So yeah, sex workers work, but it's the stigma and discrimination that the Prostitution Information Center sees as the danger. It's so interesting to me because we're sexual beings. We're all here because of sex. And I don't know if it's our own shame, right? Because men that even pay for sex are still sometimes will look down on the person that they just had sex with, even though it was consensual, hopefully. And, you know, there are lots of people that have very nice houses that you could say there was an exchange made for sex, and yet that's okay, right? And so it's this, it's almost a morality issue or a struggle around shame or acceptance of our sexuality because we're sexual beings. 
Absolutely. I think you've hit the nail on the head there. And I guess that's one of the reasons why the Prostitution Information Centre is there. We don't only welcome questions about sex, but about sexuality in general, because we understand that often the shame that people have around sex and sex work is something internal. It's something they've held on to or something they themselves feel uncomfortable with or uncomfortable exploring or have been made to feel shameful about. And this is really relevant in some of the areas of the Netherlands where we have a Bible belt and have some of the strictest policy against sex work. They're often the places that sex workers tell me they have their most frequent clients. So, you know, the more religious repression you have, the higher sexual repression you have. And often that tends to whatever you try to bend will break. And I think that's what happens a lot in these situations. And I think even when I first got started working online, I kind of rationalized it as, oh, I'm not doing sex work. I'm just, you know, I'm making a few videos online or I'm I'm talking to a few people online because I had an internalized idea of what sex work and prostitution look like. So even amongst us who are engaged in the industry, there is also stigmatization and, you know, self-induced shame in a way. I think it's got a lot to do with stigma. It's got a lot to do with our ideas of what feminism is, particularly in the Western world. There is one strain of feminism that says the cornerstone of female exploitation is prostitution. So therefore, any exchange of sex for money must be exploitation, which is simply not the case. As you perfectly pointed out, there are lots of marriages that are built upon that exchange. So, yeah, I think it's a thing of both women's sexuality but then women capitalizing off of their sexuality as well yeah which feels fair (laughs) yes (laughs) if we're going to be exploited at least get let us get paid for it Uh, no but you know what i mean it's a case of you know this this idea that we're objectifying our bodies as sex workers that's already happening in society so if i can make some money off of it and make it a fair deal or challenge the power dynamic then I don't feel like I'm doing anything wrong and you're not a feminist if you tell me what to do with my body right (laughs) absolutely has sex work impacted your relationship with money overall like do you view money differently now that you've engaged as a sex worker most definitely before I started doing sex work as I said I'd worked in caring roles I'd worked in psychiatric units I'd worked in palliative care and providing healthcare to some of the most vulnerable in society. And that is extremely badly paid work, I think, in the US as well as the UK. And would often be working 40 hours a week and getting paid anywhere between $9 to $12 an hour. When I did sex work and the first time I did it, I only worked for two hours and I made more in those two hours than I would make in two days of work. It completely changed my idea of what my work is worth and how much value I should put on my work and how much I am worth as an individual in a capitalist society. Right. So it completely changed my idea of what is a fair pay and work time dynamic and made me really question the whole nine to five five days a week work week and made me realize that actually that shouldn't be the norm 
in my mind, because often we're working ourselves to death for very little right. money. And actually now I've gone back into doing not for profit work and, you know, organizational work. I'm struggling to get back into it now because it's like, oh, I'm having to do so much work for such little pay. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that seems way more unfair than the sex work. So yeah, it completely changed my idea of money. It changed my idea of how much I as someone who'd grown up in a working class family could expect to earn especially now I've moved more into consultancy as well, how much I should charge people and feel proud about charging that or unapologetically charge that. So, you know, as you were talking about caregiving, not paying, and I was thinking about education, right? We place such a value on education, but we don't want to pay our educators. We put such a high value on caring for our elderly and all that stuff, but we don't want to pay anybody to actually do it, right? And then we all mostly enjoy sexuality, but it's shameful and it's got to be hidden. So it's very subjective. I mean, humans are complex beings, but it's just, it's interesting where we place what we say are our values and then we act differently. Absolutely. And when you look at the things we're talking about, caring, cooking, cleaning, housework, sex work, they're all very feminized forms of work and we see them as valuable work and work that has to be done to keep society moving but yet we're very against paying people for it and if you do it's almost people go mad when people demand money for housework but houses wouldn't function if this housework wasn't being done and you know we praise people who do volunteer work and care work yet when those people demand compensation for that they're terrible people right and I find it very interesting because if we were looking at more masculine forms of work that take place we wouldn't deny payment for that so it's really interesting and obviously not all sex workers are women you know that's really important to highlight but when women come forward and say actually I want to be paid for these things you've assumed that I'll do for free it's right. you know it's interesting to see how societies react to that yeah very interesting let me ask you this as a sex worker how do you get paid and even though it's legal, but how do you get loans? How does all that stuff work in the real world? Can you get credit cards? Can you just function as anybody else would that's working as a caregiver? In the Netherlands, it's really difficult because we are under a system of legalization, but what that actually means is strict regulation. Mm -hmm. And sex work is the only industry that is governed over by the Ministry of Justice and not the Ministry of Work and Employment. Hmm. So even though it's a legal profession, it's treated as a criminal enterprise. So from an institutional level, we're already dealing with stigmatization and discrimination. Now, for me, my payments come through online and I'm very lucky because then there is a traceable form of income, which means it's very easy for me to be able to prove that my payments that I'm receiving are not connected to criminal enterprise in any way. Right. However, one of the issues I do have is a lot of credit card companies, places like Master and Visa, are very scared that that money being transferred through their systems is related to sex work in any way. So this is where we saw the scandal with OnlyFans wanting to ban adult content creation on their website and they very quickly reversed that decision because they realized how much money they'd be losing. 
But it's because a lot of credit cards companies and financial institutions are terrified of money that is associated with trafficking, which is understandable. But the majority of people who are working online and creating their own content are not being trafficked or exploited. It's happening in more underground industries. Now, when we talk about sex workers who are escorts or working in the windows or engaging in street work, that is a cash based income. And that is for many reasons. One is because it's very difficult as a sex worker in the Netherlands to get a business bank account, which means you can't get a pin reader. So therefore, you are unable to ask for pin payments and also the fact that most clients do not want to make card payments to sex workers because it's much easier to pay someone 100 euros than it is to explain to your wife why you paid 200 euros for an erotic massage in Amsterdam, which come up on your bank statement. But what it means is because in the Netherlands, if you have cash, you are responsible for proving that that money is not associated with criminal enterprise. So you are guilty until proven innocent and you have to do the proving in a way, which means that it's very difficult for you to get a business bank account. It's very difficult for you to apply for a loan and it's very difficult for you to apply for a mortgage if you don't have any other income apart from sex work. And it even means that people who try to move on from the sex industry, for example, the founder of the PIC, Mariska Major now has a cookie business, but she can't get a business bank account because she was a well-known sex worker who did lots of interviews and therefore they're scared that her money might in some way be associated with traffickers or human exploitation. So while the consensus in government is that they want people to move on from the sex industry and help people to do that, they're not providing the means or the ability for sex workers to take agency and move themselves on from sex work. That's so interesting. You know, it's legal. We're still thinking you might be a criminal element and we want you to move on, but we're not going to help you. And we're going to put up roadblocks. They don't make it easy. Phoebe, we're going to take just a moment to test your nerve. Test your nerve is brought to you by themoneynerve.com. Are financial fears keeping you awake at night? Face your money monsters at testyournerve.com and take our free quiz. Don't let the boogeyman win. Visit us today. Here we go. Name one way you've established boundaries between you and clients. Creating another name for myself. Providing information about myself that isn't directly traceable. So not telling clients where I live, not telling clients what I do in my other jobs, not providing private personal information and being very clear about what I I am happy to do. And what I'm not happy to do. That's great. Have you ever had a client try to rescue you financially? Yes, definitely. Uh, I've had clients who are convinced that I've been trafficked or exploited, who tried to convince me to leave the industry, which they can do that all they want. The meat is still running. You know, I'm still getting paid. So if they want to have a debate with me online instead of (laughs) receiving sexual services, I'm fine with that too. Yeah, and I've definitely, yeah, not even just clients. I've had friends who've tried to rescue me as well, and that's harder to deal with. My next question is, have you ever had an uncomfortable money-related conversation with family or friends since becoming a sex worker? 
definitely. I think my feminist friends at university are divided into two. Those who are very about free sex, free body, do what you want. And my feminist friends who see sex work as human exploitation and nothing else. And it was very difficult to get them to understand that I'm not encouraging men's objectification of women or letting men think that they can do what they want with me. Absolutely not. That is not what happens. Um, You can pay me and I'll decide whether we do what you want to do. And you can have an argument with me about it. Like I said, the money keeps on coming in. So I've walked off during arguments, made a cup of tea and come back and still found someone arguing. And I've made 50 euros. So that's that's awesome. And what's the most insulting tip that a client has left you? I mean, do you normally get tipped? I don't know if that's a thing like in the US. Can can tip me. And I've I've been very lucky. I've never I've never received an insulting comment or insulting tip. Yeah, for me, it's. It's, it's not as common to receive tips. It's kind of a little extra if you do. So, yeah, it's not a case of someone's left me a tip and it's been like, that wasn't very good um, <laughs> because I set my rates quite high. So if people want to leave me a tip, then that's a nice little extra. Right. <laughs> that makes sense. What self-care rituals, if any, do you do to keep you grounded in this emotionally complex work? I think trying to have definite time which I see as working time and as my own time but I find actually this is difficult because I'm doing so many different jobs also doing work within NGO work which also tests my boundaries it's a lot easier to do that with sex work because once the computer's closed that's it so yeah I think make sure you get time outside as well in this world where everything has moved online we can get stuck in front of our computers for what feels like days. Yeah, spending quality time with myself and treating myself to little things when I want to. And yeah, having conversations about what's gone on at work with other sex workers, I think is really important too. It can be really difficult to talk to sometimes those around you that you love about sex work because they don't understand it. Whereas sitting down with other sex workers and talking about funny clients, it's the best. It's, you know, you'll be on your back laughing at some point. So I think it's important to keep in touch with community as well when you're doing this work. I mean, that really makes sense because it's not like you're working as a team in your job, right? It's very individual and very isolating in a way because it's very singular. So at least being able to hear other people's stories or hearing, getting support I want to jump back to something that you said, and I I just really want to highlight this for a moment. You were talking about how people were saying you're maybe reaffirming exploitation, right? And it seems to me the world is going to exploit or the world is going to do whatever it does, right? And we individually may not be able to say, okay, we're going to fix the whole world. Or, you know, I sometimes say, you know, when people say, well, that's immoral and that we should make a law, you can't legislate morality. And so there's nothing wrong with taxing it or there's nothing wrong for charging for it. And so it's going to happen anyway, whether you do or don't charge money. So it's not like it's it's just like the exploitation or people's perception of it. It's going to happen whether you engage or not, if women engage or not. And I think this is something which people really struggle to grip with. And it's something which I try and encourage people to understand through the academic work that I've done 
on this subject. So my master's is in gender violence and conflict. So I don't only understand this from a personal and professional perspective, but also an academic one. And people really struggle to understand that criminalizing something or victimizing sex workers does not stop them from engaging in sex work, even in the areas of the world where they behead people for engaging in sex work. People still do it. What we find, though, is that if you legalize it or even better, decriminalize sex work and provide safe situations for sex work to take place in, you actually protect sex workers better. You create environments where sex workers can take a lot more agency to say who they work with, how they work and how much they earn. And like you said, it's going to happen anyway. So why not make it as safe as possible? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've talked about money and and different things, more morality, all that. How did you get involved with PIC, Prostitution Information Center? What led you there to get involved? So after I came back from Thailand and I started doing my master's, which, as I said, was in gender violence and conflict, I had lots of amazing students around me who were focusing on domestic violence, human trafficking, very worthy causes. Mm -hmm. But I realized that no one was focusing on sex work from a sex worker's perspective. And while there have been many academics before me that have focused on stigma and discrimination, I became very interested in sex worker working spaces, so red light districts, as they're commonly known, and how they can provide benefits to sex workers, how they can provide negatives to sex workers. and how does the public perception of what safety is differ from sex workers' perspective of what safety is? So I became very interested in Holbeck, which was the UK's first ever experimental red light district, which unfortunately got closed during COVID and never opened again mm-hmm. and received very negative attention. But actually, when I did research on this, we found that it actually reduced violence towards sex workers because it provided a public space for sex work to take place in. It wasn't perfect. It could have been better, but it was better than the situation we have now. I became very interested in the mayor of Amsterdam's current proposal in Amsterdam to close the windows and move the red light district into an erotic hotel. So the way I try and explain it to people is if you imagine a Hot Wheels car park, That's kind of the building design that you've got. And I wanted to do research in how does the current environment of Dvalin provide agency, community and safety to sex workers? And how would that differ in the new proposed area? So as you can imagine, as someone who's openly a sex worker, it was very difficult for me to find internship placement. And I found the Prostitution Information Centre online and you know, saw that they were a very sex positive space and a sex worker led team as well. So I just emailed them and said, look, I'm a sex worker. I'm trying to do research. Please let me come and work for you. I'll do whatever. I'll, you know, clean floors. But I just want to get an opportunity to interview a few people and see the space. So they got back to me and they actually needed help archiving over 30 years of historical material, which I'm also a bit of a nerd which I think a lot of uh, (laughs) online sex workers are and I thought okay well that's a fair exchange you know I'll do the archive and then 
you guys can provide me um, interviews. So I did that for six months. And then the opportunity came up to be the coordinator of the Prostitution Information Centre. And I honestly applied for it thinking this will just be good job experience. I didn't actually think I'd get the job. And I did. And this also aligned perfectly with me falling in love with a Dutch man. And it just seemed like, well, let's do this. You know, when else are you going to get an opportunity to do this? Because I just got my master's that had also opened up visa opportunities for me. So, yeah. And I've been there for over a year now and I absolutely love it. That's so awesome. I'm going to take it back to childhood for a second because you talked about there's a belief that, you know, most workers have been traumatized, abused, not educated, maybe. What was your relationship with money growing up? What was your environment like as a kid? So I had a very loving, but very working class upbringing. And I didn't feel like I was growing up in a low income family because we always had food on the table and my parents would suffer so that we could thrive. Now I look back retrospectively, I can see that actually we didn't have as much money as maybe I thought I did. And especially my dad, who grew up in poverty, gave us the tools and the discipline we needed to be able to work hard and to treat our money carefully. So it meant that we were all, um, me and all my brothers and sisters, were socialised in a way that you can achieve anything, but you're going to have to work really hard to get there. And therefore, I think that's where going into care work after school, because I didn't do very well at school the first time round. I was undiagnosed with ADHD and Asperger's syndrome. So therefore, especially going to school during the 90s and the early 20s, they weren't very understanding of that. Um, my parents were very much like, well, if you're not going to go to school, you have to work. Right. And working in care homes as, you know, sometimes arguably exploitative, as I would say it is, it really taught me the discipline I needed of that. You get exactly what you put in back. So that's kind of how I grew up. And yeah, I think it means that now I'm often overprotective about money in a way. I understand that money can suddenly disappear and that you have to protect yourself. And anytime I have, you know, spent a little bit too much on something or treated myself as something, there's always that kind of post buy guilt, you know, that post spending clarity in a way. <laughs> yeah. Money does come and go. And, and at least as I get older, I'm just not as willing to just watch it fly away if I can help it. <laughs> I like to keep it nearby. Well, we are at the M&M moment, the money and motivation. So this is a perfect time. I just wanted to ask if you have a practical financial tip or a piece of wealth wisdom that you could share with the listeners, because as you're saying, money comes and goes. And what, what do you do? Especially as a lesson from COVID is to have various sources of income. So sex work is just one of my many incomes. What I would say is good advice is have one set of money that's your stability, have another set of money that is or another set of income that is kind of your your pocket money or your treat money. Yeah. And then have a form of money that is your love, your joy. So sex work is kind of like my pocket money. It's right. my uh, my treat money. 
Right. Working at the PIC is my my joy money. It's mm-hmm. the, the thing I love to do is to talk to people about sex work. And then my stability money is my consultancy for organizations I do. So that if something happens like the global pandemic again and suddenly you lose work, you have other forms of income that you can fall back on. And in this day and age, there is no such thing as a stable career anymore you can lose your career at the drop of a hat even if you have a contract so make sure you're not putting all your eggs in one basket and one more tip if i have time yeah. is to always have excuse my language get the fuck out of here money especially <laughs> if definitely need that <laughs> i think it's so that if you decide you want to do something exciting or something that's a bit outrageous or risky you always have the money to get yourself out of that situation if you need to I think that's also really important to have. Absolutely. And even if you're in a job that you hate or you're in a relationship that you realize is bad or dangerous, having that money to be able to say, I'm out. Yeah, exactly. Tapping out and being able to fly away is really, really important. Yeah. I years ago left a job I hated and I had no plan and I had no money. And it took me about five or six years to get back on my feet. And I don't regret it. It would have been nice if I had had get the out money at that time. (laughs) So I can appreciate that. Well, you know, Phoebe, for me, the theme here is really how do we start to destigmatize, normalize conversations and how we view sex work and really starting to realize that it's something that most of us are connected to if we're connected to our sexuality at all. And being able to start to see that our sexuality doesn't have to be this shameful thing so that we actually put it on everybody else to make them bad so we get to feel good. And just this openness and willingness and this desire to actually have an impact to help people that haven't gotten to have a voice for the most part for various reasons. And so I just appreciate that you're out there giving voice, shining a light, and really bringing this topic up because there's so much out there and this is going on, but there's just not a lot of conversation. Thank you, Bob. I think it's really lovely for you to say that. And that's often why the Prostitution Information Center does these talks and why we're a sex worker-led team, because often we're spoken over rather than spoken to. And there is an assumption that we are all vulnerable, passive, victims of violence or drug addicts or add stigmatizing title and I think by actually sitting down and being able to speak face to face to a sex worker and realize actually we come in all shapes and forms we have all different backgrounds Um, some of us are educated some of us are not but that doesn't mean we're any less willing or able to make a choice and getting the opportunity to see things from our perspective and you know Shows like yours allowing us an opportunity to speak about something that isn't directly about our work, but actually another area that is also really important and how people can actually learn things from sex workers rather than just listen to traumatizing stories about them is one of the ways that we do destigmatize sex work and get people to realize, oh, this is just like someone else I know, or, you know, this is a uh, you know, she may be a sex worker, but actually she's just like any other person. And I think that's something that people, if they take away anything away from your podcast, is that 
you probably know a sex worker. It's just they haven't had the courage to tell you. And once you realize that and you also realize that sex is an exchange like any other service, whether you're enjoying it or not, it's still an exchange. People will start to self-analyze and realize that actually it's not sex work that is bad, but it's the morality, the stigma and the discrimination that we pile on top of it. Yeah, absolutely. Where can people find out more about PIC online social media? People can go straight to our website, which is pic-amsterdam.com to see what we're about, what our mission and vision are. I say if they want to donate to us or you know have a look at our book collection that we have for sale. We're also on Twitter or X now at PIC Amsterdam. And I would say we are also on Instagram, but we keep getting blocked on there. So um, yeah, the best way to get see what we're up to and to get the most up-to-date information about us is through X. That's awesome. We will post all that. Phoebe, thanks so much for taking the time and coming in and having this conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Bob. Anytime. Hey there, Money Master. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Did you learn some valuable insights around your relationship with money? Our guests shared some of their financial epiphanies. You might have experienced one too. Don't just sit there with that aha moment. Share it with us and the world by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Or leave a comment on one of our socials, at Money You Should Ask. Let's spread the word and help others explore their financial health too. But that's not all. Do you want to live in abundance and build wealth that can sustain you and your family for generations to come? It only takes one thing, the willingness to change the way you think about your money. It's time to test your money nerve and discover what's been holding you back from financial freedom. Take the free quiz now at themoneynerve.com and begin your journey towards a prosperous future.